0: Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton welcome to the cerebral faith podcast today i'm going to be talking about one hell of a theological issue you could say that it's a hot topic when i get to bit be- to debating or preaching on this issue i'm on fire i was in torment on whether to do this topic today or to push it to a further date and talk about something else instead if you haven't gotten the hint uh... If you haven't inferred what I'm going to talk about through all of my punny hints, the topic I'm going to be talking about is the the doctrine of hell. And unlike my puns, hell is no laughing matter. Not only is it a place you don't want to go, but it is one of the arguments that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and that we, as Christian apologists, need to demolish. Here I'm alluding to 2 Corinthians 10.5. Many people think that the doctrine of hell is incompatible with a perfectly good and loving God. How could a good God send people to hell, they ask? How could a just God torture people for an infinite amount of time for sins of only finite consequence? How could God torture people for an infinite amount of time for sins that are only a finite consequence? Isn't that cosmic overkill? Isn't it, not even Hitler is bad enough to be tortured for an infinite amount of time, right? And also, if you need to believe in Jesus to avoid hell and get into heaven, what happens to those who die without ever hearing the gospel preached? What happens to babies who die? How could it be possible for God to punish all sins equally, These and other objections are what I'm going to be dealing with in today's podcast episode. By the way, for those who want to go further into this topic, I wrote a a whole book on this called A Hellacious Doctrine, A Defense of the Biblical Doctrine of Hell, I published it back in uh, July of 2017, and you can buy it on Amazon.com on paperback and Kindle formats. The book isn't as big as my other ones. It's only 150 pages, but 150 pages is more content than I can cram into a one-hour podcast. So check that out if you want to go further. First, let me explain why hell even exists. And why God would even send people there? Is God, is God a, a sadist? Does He send people to hell for no reason at all? Why, why, does, why does God do that? Why, does God, why doesn't God just let everyone into heaven? Well, the Bible states in Romans three twenty three and Psalm chapter fourteen verses two to three and a couple of other places that every person on the face of the planet has sinned, and has fallen short against God's moral standards. Romans 3:23 says, "All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God." Psalm chapter 14 verses 2 to 3 says, "The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one." The Bible also tells us that God is holy and just. For example, Psalm chapter 11 verse 6 tells us that, quote, "The Lord is righteous. He loves justice." Quote. Also, you have Psalm 9:16, which tells us that the Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. Because God is just, that means that he cannot let sin go unpunished. A holy and righteous God must punish people for the wicked deeds that they have done. If God does not punish people for their wicked deeds, then that means that he's not righteous. He's not holy. It would mean that he's a corrupt judge. But God isn't a corrupt judge. He is just, as the passages I've just quoted say. However, although God is just, He is also love. 1 John 4.8 and 1 John 4.16 say unequivocally, God is love. Because God loves us, He does not want to send us to hell to be tormented for our sins. As 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, God is not willing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. Likewise, 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God gave a cure for our sin situation by becoming a human being as John 1:14 and Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8 tells us and he took the punishment on himself god suffered his own wrath on the cross the second person of the trinity endured the wrath of the first person of the trinity by being crucified The Lord loved us so much that he was willing to endure the most horrific torture known to man so that he could avoid judging us. In fact, historical evidence tells us that this death that Jesus died was one of the worst ways imaginable that a human being could possibly die. And I talked about this in one of the episodes of my resurrection series that I did during Holy Week. That was a five-part episode. I can't remember the episode numbers, but if you whatever podcast uh, whatever podcatcher you're on, if you're on Stitcher or Anchor or, or Spotify, you can probably you can scroll back and you can find the Resurrection series and there I talk about the medical effects of crucifixion, which is why the swoon theory is rubbish. It's just It was a horrific, horrific scourging. And some of the things that happened uh, during that whole process was that, um, for example, when the Romans crucified a person, they would use whips. And those whips had multiple jagged edges made of sheep bone that would cut through a person's skin like butter. And they would do that uh, about 40 times, 40 lashes. And the Roman lashes, the, the 40 Roman lashes had multiple jagged edges of metal and sheep bone and metal balls and, and anything that would cut or injure a person. And so you can imagine that after 40 backs with multiple jagged edges, uh, how shredded a person's back would be. Eusebius said, the uh, he, he described the, the pre-cru... The, this is not even the crucifixion but the pre-crucifixion scourging the, the church historian Eusebius said "Quote: the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very uh, sinews and bowels of the victim were laid open to exposure end quote and according to Dr. Alexander Methrell in his interview with Lee Strobel in the book The Case for Christ uh, the the whipping could get so bad that the spine the person's spine was sometimes exposed after going through that hellacious beating the romans nailed jesus to the cross and they mailed him they nailed him through the median nerve and this according to medical experts uh, including but not limited to dr alexander metrell uh, this being nailed through this nerve would have produced a pain That was like being struck by lightning, or as some people say, it was uh, like taking the nerve of your funny funny bone and twisting it with a pair of pliers. That's how painful being nailed to the cross was. God loves us so much that he was willing to become a human and endure all of that so that we wouldn't have to. The best thing about hell is that no one has to go there. God made a way for human beings to attain salvation. All we have to do is accept it. God gave us free will. It's up to us where we end up for eternity. See Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 15 to 19 and Joshua chapter 24 verse 15. If you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if there are non-Christians out there listening to this podcast, if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you pray to Him for salvation, confessing your sins and turning away from your life of sin, then His atoning death will be applied to you. His blood will cover your sins and God will forgive you of everything that you've ever done wrong. This is what... The Bible promises us in first John one nine and isaiah fifty five seven isaiah fifty five seven says though his sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. let let the evil man forsake his ways First John 1 nine says that God is that that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and he will uh, forgive us of all our unrighteousness. However, if we reject him, then we'll have to pay the penalty for our sins ourselves. I believe that God feels deep sorrow when he has to send human beings to hell. The The same way that earthly parents mourn over the physical deaths of their children. For example, in Ezekiel 18.23, God says through the prophet Ezekiel that he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but prefers that the wicked turn from their sins and live. God repeats this in Ezekiel 33.11. And in Luke chapter 19 verses 41 to 44, we read that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, quote, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it Here, Jesus is weeping over the coming judgment on the people of Jerusalem. Now, this passage reveals something profound about God's attitude towards judgment. It tells us that, like Ezekiel 18.23 and Ezekiel 33.11, God takes great displeasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus was weeping over what would happen to these people because they rejected him as Messiah. Uh, We can infer that he was weeping over their eternal damnation we can infer that he was weeping over their eternal damnation because they were what Jesus is referring to here is the destruction of Jerusalem which was recorded by Josephus among other historians now he he was weeping over their eternal damnation because millions of Jews were slaughtered by the Romans in that event in 70 AD and if they died physically while dead spiritually, that means that their souls went to hell. So Jesus is anticipating that these people getting killed by their enemies and God having to send them to hell for rejecting Christ. With love, there is always heartbreak. And since God's love is the greatest love of all, then I imagine his heartbreak is the greatest of them all too. If God wants all people saved and everyone who gets saved becomes a child of God, as John chapter 1 verse 12 tells us, then it follows that God loves all people in the same way that a mother or father loves their children. God wanted us to stay out of hell so much that he suffered hell on a Roman cross. The cross of Christ is God's way of saying, I'd rather it be me than you. Now, that is not the end of the of the issue though there are we can the skeptic can admit okay granted we god we are sinners we've we've done wrong we've all, all of us have done wrong to some extent or another and god has to punish sin but because god loves us he didn't want to punish sin so he became a man and took the punishment on himself and all we have to do is turn in faith to him, repent of our sins, confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and will be saved. We won't have to be punished for our sins, um, and it's up to us. and And if anyone who doesn't accept Christ's offer of redemption has to pay the penalty himself, that's fair. If you want, like God said in Ezekiel eighteen, if you want to, if you want to live, turn from your sins. If you don't, you'll die. How am I being unfair? Is and he's talking to the Israelites. How am I being unfair? My ways are not unfair. Your ways are unfair. My ways are not unjust. Your ways are unjust. Turn and live. If you don't turn, you'll die. That how? That's fair, right? But what about the the severity of the punishment? All of us firmly believe that the punishment should match the crime. Right? The punishment should match the crime. Uh, we should never punish any any crime more severely than what it deserves you wouldn't execute someone for stealing a candy bar right but you also shouldn't punish a sin that's too that isn't severe enough that's why we don't give a slap on the wrist to serial killers now this belief that you shouldn't uh, undergirds the objection that eternal torment in hell is far too severe for God to dish out. What crime could possibly be so bad, so evil, so severe, that an eternity of unending, unwavering suffering would be a fitting punishment? You could think of the worst person imaginable, Someone who kills innocent people on a daily basis, they eat babies, they have a plethora of women locked up in their basement whom they rape and torture on a, on a frequent basis, and to top it all off, they are thieves and they blaspheme God as well. They are the worst person imaginable. We can imagine someone who is just evil in the greatest extent to every area a person can be evil. Someone we can, Someone truly worthy of our deepest hatred. Now, would such a person deserve to be tortured or tormented for all eternity? We could certainly agree that such a demon of a man would deserve terrible suffering, perhaps for many years, but at some point the punishment should let up. As bad as as a, a, as bad and as many as this hypothetical psycho's sins are, not even they deserve eternal torment. The punishment doesn't seem to match the crime. Now, I the, I am sympathetic to this objection. I struggled with it for... I struggled very, very much with it. And I found some satisfying answers to it. Now, first, let me just get this out of the way. Some Christians would say that the objection presupposes a false premise. Namely, that people are... Tormented for all eternity in hell, they would say no. What God does when he condemns a person is he annihilates them from existence. He either annihilates them immediately upon condemn about upon pronouncing sentence, or uh, they endure torment for a little while and then. They're snuffed out of existence, and depending on how severe their sins are will depend on how long they're tormented, but eventually they're annihilated. Um, This view is called annihilationism. Now, in my book, A Hellacious Doctrine, in chapter 2, I talk about the biblical arguments for and against uh, annihilationism. This is not the place to get into that. I'm not going to debate whether or not the Bible teaches annihilationism. Rather, uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to just presuppose that the Bible teaches eternal conscious torment, and I'm going to address that objection. If um, you can get my book for for why I reject annihilationism on biblical ground. I, think the, I don't think the Bible teaches it. I think the Bible teaches the exact opposite. But, given that, how can God be just? If, if the Bible teaches an eternal torment rather than annihilationism, like I think, then how are we going to deal with the objection? Now, six years ago, when I was just dipping my toes into the waters of Christian apologetics... I read a book by Christian apologist and philosopher Dr. William Lane Craig called On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision. And in chapter 10, he gave an answer that revolutionized how I thought of the doctrine of eternal torment. It just really, it was like a weight was lifted off of my shoulders. It just made so much sense. I'm going to quote from that book now. Craig wrote, quote, The objection equivocates between every sin we commit and all the sins we commit. We could agree that every single sin a person commits deserves only a finite punishment. But it doesn't follow from this that all of a person's sins taken together as a whole deserve only a finite punishment. If a person commits an infinite number of sins, then the sum total of all such sins deserves infinite punishment. Now, of course, nobody commits an infinite number of sins in the earthly life. But what about in the afterlife? In so far as the inhabitants of hell continue to hate God and reject Him, they continue to sin, and so accrue to themselves more guilt and more punishment. In a real sense, then, hell is self perpetuating. In such a case, every sin has a finite punishment. But because sinning goes on forever, so does the punishment." Quote. The scenario that dr Craig presents would, would be like when a prisoner stabs an inmate to death in prison. Given that he's committed a heinous crime, he gets more time added to his sentence than the judge initially gave him. If the prisoner keeps stabbing inmates to death, the judge will keep increasing amount the amount of time that he'll be incarcerated. Craig proposes that something similar is going on in hell. If people sin forever, then they'll be punished forever. Now, one is apt to accuse Dr. Craig of un. Unfounded speculation. How do we know that people do in fact sin forever in hell? This is a good question. Whether or not we have any evidence that this is actually the case is irrelevant if one is charging logical incompatibility between God's goodness and eternal torment. If one is merely saying that it's logically impossible for God to be good and for sinners in hell to be tormented for eternity, then merely raising this perpetual sin notion as a possibility is enough for an adequate refutation. In this scenario, it would seem to me that eternal punishment would be just if people sin for eternity. For as I said in uh, for, um, as I said earlier in this podcast episode, A just God must punish sin. If one thinks, as I do, that this situation would be one, even if it's the only one where eternal punishment is justified, and this situation is logically possible, then it follows that there's no logical incompatibility between God's goodness and his submitting sinners to unending punishment. However, I do think we can go further than merely positing that it's logically possible for the statements God is morally perfect and God subjects sinners to eternal punishment to both be true by postulating the scenario. I think there's actually good biblical evidence that sinning in hell does go on forever, although the evidence in the Bible is circumstantial as opposed to the Bible telling us this directly. My argument here could be expressed in the form of the following syllogism. 1. People who do evil things deserve to suffer. 2. The people in hell do evil things for eternity. 3. Therefore, the people in hell deserve to suffer for eternity. This is a logically valid syllogism, as it takes the form modus ponens. Therefore, if the premises are true, the conclusion follows logically and necessarily. The only way to refute the argument would be to show that one of the premises is false. So, are these premises true, or are they false? Well, let's look at them. Premise 1 seems to me to be intuitively evident. Just think about it. Do you think that the person who caused 9-11 deserved to suffer for what they did? Yes? Did Hitler? Yes? If you said yes to both of those, then that means that you agree with Premise 1. You agree that people should experience something unpleasant for these nasty deeds. If someone murdered a family member of yours, you'd probably want to to beat the killer to a pulp, because you think he deserves that and probably more for killing your loved one. In some cultures in the world, the tribal chief will give criminals a certain amount of lashes depending on the crime he committed. The tribal chief does this because he and the tribe believe that evildoers need to experience something unpleasant. It seems to me to be universally recognized that crime deserves punishment, and punishment, by its very nature, isn't pleasant. Even King David agrees with this premise. Remember when Nathan told him the parable of the person stealing another man's lamb in order to kill it for a meal? David was so outraged that he shouted, That that man deserves to die. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And not only that, but David wrote several imprecation psalms. Imprecation psalms are psalms uh, asking God to judge evil people. Um, that's what an imprecatory or an impre- imprecation psalm is. This is further evidence that he agrees with this premise. And by the way who doesn't applaud when a fictional villain gets his ju- his just desserts in a movie or a comic book who who does who, who didn't like to see nurse ratchet uh, get nearly choked to death in that movie uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest the first premise of this argument seems more plausible to me than its negation premise 2 is the only premise that really seems debatable. If the people in hell were to stop sinning, it could very well be the case that as soon as their time was served, God, in his great mercy and love, would snuff them out of existence so they wouldn't have to suffer anymore. But I think it's very probable that just because a person is sent to hell, that doesn't mean that he stops sinning. I think it's very probable that people continue to sin for eternity, and if people keep sinning over and over, then they'll accrue more and more punishment to themselves. Now, um, we have a few examples in the Bible of people suffering under God's wrath. They know that God is unhappy with them, and yet they still refuse to turn away from their evil deeds. One one of the, the most One of the clearest, one of the best examples of this is in the book of Revelation. In the book book of Revelation, the bowls of God's wrath are poured out in judgment upon mankind. Those judged are not repentant, but curse God all the more. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. From the sky huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Revelation chapter 16, verses 8 to 11 and verse 21. Now, these people in the book of Revelation, In Revelation chapter 16, verses 8 to 11, verse 21, they give us an indication of people who seem to be cognitively aware that God is the reason they're suffering and making them suffer. And he's making them suffer because because of their evil deeds. Yet instead of saying, Okay, okay, God, I'm sorry, I'll repent, I'll repent, just free me from this misery, stop it, please. Instead of doing that, they curse him even more. That's incredible. Instead of saying, Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, they say... Ah, curse you, curse you, God! Ah, I hate you for doing this to me. It's just, it's incredible. This this is in the Bible. It it reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said. He said that hell is a door which is locked from the inside. The damned are damned because they choose to be damned. Incredible as that seems, their hatred of God is so extreme, so severe, that they would rather endure his wrath than experience his love. They would rather curse him than praise him. A second example of this is the Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Uh, Even if you haven't read the book of Exodus, you've probably at least seen the movie The Ten Commandments starring Charlton Heston. Uh, The book of Exodus records the exodus, hence the name, of all of the Israelites out of Egypt after years of being enslaved to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, however, did not let the Israelites go easily. Instead, he conceded only after enduring plague after plague after plague. After having your water supply entirely turned to blood, having your homes literally overrun with frogs, dust turning into gnats, which cover all of the people and animals in Egypt, and seeing your crops destroyed by swarms and locusts, you would think that a person would know that God was not happy with him and that he should repent to prevent any further disaster from falling upon him. But no... There were ten plagues in all, and only on the tenth plague, the death of every firstborn son, including Pharaoh's own son, did Pharaoh change his mind and cease opposing God. But only then did he let the Israelites go free. But even then, after the Israelites had left, Pharaoh hardened his heart and pursued the Israelites in an attempt to bring them back. And we all know how that ended. God parted the Red Sea to let the Israelites across. But once they were across, God let the waters back down and drowned Pharaoh and his army. Uh, Now, Pharaoh knew. Pharaoh knew that God was the reason that he and the Egyptians were suffering. He knew what it would take to make God stop. But in spite of that, he still opposed him. A third really good example is Satan and the demons. Satan has been against God for thousands and thousands of years. As an evolutionary creationist, I would say probably millions of years since he fell. He's had a hell of a long time. Okay, another pun. Sorry. He's <laughs> he's had a very long time to repent, but he still hasn't. He still hasn't. And by the way, for those who say, "Oh, I would I would become a Christian if only if only I knew God exists." Would you? If you knew Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Would you worship him? Satan didn't. One-third of the angels didn't. One-third of the angels, they were in God's presence and they rebelled against him. For many, many, it's not an evidence problem. It's a heart problem. But given these three examples, we have a good biblical basis to believe that, incredible as it seems... People keep sinning in hell. So, premise two is true. Now remember, the objection against hell presupposes that there is a God, that there is a hell, that Christianity, and that the Bible correctly describes what is going on in hell. In other words, the the objection against God's goodness and hell's And hell, and, and their compatibility, it presupposes that Christianity and the and the Bible are true. So the, I am appealing to the Bible to defend God's character. But this is totally legitimate because this is this is an argument that that Christianity is incoherent, internally incoherent. This and the people who mount the objection against God use the Bible. So the Bible is the battleground for both the. Non Christian and the Christian. We're both presupposing that the Bible accurately depicts God's character and the nature of hell. So anyone who say, Oh, well, you're presupposing the Bible is true. Well, yeah, well, so is the skeptic. So don't pull that. <laughs> now, some have asked me, What does sinning in hell look like? Oh, what, if, if sinning. We've got good reasons to believe both premises are true, and the conclusion follows. Therefore, people deserve to suffer for eternity in hell. Uh, because of premise two, they sin forever in hell. People have asked me, what does that look like? Um, well, we don't, we don't really know for sure. Uh, we don't know for sure what kinds of sin the sinners are committing in hell. Now, it could be... It could be a case that their only sin is blaspheming God for eternity, like we see in Revelation chapter sixteen. You bleeping mother, bleeping bleep, get me out of here, you evil sick tyrant! I'ma cut you. <laughs> now, <laughs> or something like that. You know, this is that's certainly sinful, and and that would merit additional punishment and to what they've already experienced, it, in addition to the sins that they committed while they were still alive, like lust and murder and adultery and idolatry and lying and all that um, th- th- you know th- this this continual blaspheming this uh, because of their punishment is what we have in Revelation chapter 16 people, the people endure God's wrath continually curse them it, another possibility is that the suffering in hell, might be caused by the very people in hell. Think about it this way. Look at how horrible this world is because people treat each other like crap. People kill, rape, molest, mock, and steal from one another all the time. We've practically turned this world into a semi-hell. I cannot turn on the news without hearing of another murder or another kidnapping that happened. Oh, look, another mass shooting. That's the fifth one this year. Now, imagine a world where a bunch of sinners, God just leaves them alone. They're, they are off to do their own thing. They are left to their own devices. And they do some a lot of the same things they did while they were still alive. Like Adolf Hitler, for instance. In that kind of world, human beings would create hell themselves. Now, in this view, talk about fire is merely metaphorical speech. I, I give some reasons in my book for thinking that the, all of the fire language in the Bible is a metaphor. Uh, quick quick reason for that is is that the Bible describes hell as being both full of fire and full of darkness. Now if the fire is literal, the darkness cannot be literal because the fire would light everything up. Of course, it's also possible that the fire is literal and the darkness is metaphorical. Uh, you know we use darkness as a, as a metaphor for evil or, or serious things all the time um you know like dark humor you know dark humor is like food not everyone gets it <laughs> um you know so it but but what we know for sure is that they both cannot be literal they, they because they they contradict each other if you have literal fire you can't have literal darkness if you have literal darkness you can't have literal fire they both could be metaphors but they both can't be literal now, In this view, where people create hell themselves, the talk about fire is just merely metaphorical speech. It's just trying to give a description of how horrible living in such a world full of evil people doing harm to one another and no divine intervention to bring good out of it would be like. Uh, Like, imagine if you you were to place a bunch of serial killers in a locked room with each other and they were all trying to kill each other. That would be horrible, for them anyway. Well, uh, some think of hell like a room full of psychos trying to hurt one another. People are torturing... People are torturing one another in hell. Not, it's not God torturing them. They're doing it to each other. God is indeed punishing them, but he's doing so indirectly. The reason why they have to endure that for eternity is because they're committing sins against each other for eternity. Therefore, they have to continue to suffer at the hands of their fellow sinners for a longer period of time because of their own sins if this theory is true hell could be either a wonderful place or the worst place possible just depending on who's there if all the people in heaven were to move to hell and all the people in hell would, would move to heaven pretty soon heaven would be hell and hell would be heaven now an atheist blogger who goes by the pseudonym the counter-apologist, I debated him, by the way, several years ago. You can find the debate, uh, the link to the to, to the debate on my website, cerebralfaith.blogspot.com, and he brought up this objection in the debate, but I'm what I'm quoting from is not a transcript of the debate. It's from a blog post he wrote. He's the counter-apologist, and he wrote, quote, there are... A few more laughable objections, like saying hell is a prison that's run by inmates, and and since God isn't there, it's only as terrible as the people in in hell make it. But any person who made a prison that let inmates do whatever they wanted to other inmates would be arrested for crimes against humanity on earth. What does that say about God? End quote. The thing is that hell, on this view, gives the unbeliever exactly what he wants. What he wants is eternity away from God. As C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, there are those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done, end quote. In other words, God says to the unbeliever on Judgment Day, you want nothing to do with me? Fine. I'll send you to a place where you won't have to feel my presence for all eternity. You don't want anything to do with my rules, my thou shalts and thou shalt nots? Fine. I'll send you to a place where you and those like you can do whatever you want. If this is really how hell is, I think it's a brilliant way to pass judgment. On the one hand, God isn't doing anything at all to punish the the unbeliever. At least not in a direct sense. He's not keeping a fire going to perpetuate their screams, or he's not making literal fiery rocks fall on their heads or anything like that. He's just putting all of the evil and unrepentant sinners in another world so that they'll be quarantined from the rest of creation and say, You don't want anything to do with my rules? Fine. I'll give you what you want. Have at it. You're free to do whatever you want for all eternity. Now, on the flip side of that coin, this is the worst thing that could happen to a sinner because now he's going to be at the mercy of other sinners and also the evil within himself. And because people are sinning for eternity, they therefore have to endure that kind of existence for eternity. Perpetual sin equals perpetual punishment. Not even atheists themselves think that it's unjust to punish people for their sins. They just think that it's unjust to punish someone infinitely long for sins of a finite magnitude. But again, if the sinning goes on forever, then the punishment also needs to go on forever. So what's the problem? God is not unjust for subjecting Hitler to a world where vengeance-thirsty Jews hunt him down and beat the stuffing out of him, is he? Wouldn't Hitler deserve such a treatment? And since seeking one's own vengeance is a sin, as Ro- see Romans chapter 12 verse 19, then whatever those Jews are in for, maybe rejecting Christ, uh, they'll they'll have to they'll have time added to their sentence. And what if Hitler retaliates? then those people suffer for what they did to him. But Hitler, as a result of committing the sin of vengeance, gets more time added to his sentence. What about the argument that if a human warden did this, he'd be charged with crimes against humanity? To that, I just say, I think that's a red herring. You have to refute my syllogism if you want to avoid the conclusion. It's It's a question of what people deserve, do people deserve what they get in this scenario? What, 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 he, what? What the counter-apologist has to do is refute either premise one or premise two. Just saying, oh well, if a human warden, well, we're not dealing with a human warden; we're dealing with the God of the universe. Which premise do you reject, and why? So, I've spent a lot of time on that objection, but that's mainly just because this is the big, this is the biggie, this is the big one. Um, when it comes to objections to God's moral character on the on the doctrine on the basis of the doctrine of hell, the infinite punishment one is like number one on my list. That's why it's the first one I uh, address in my book A Hellacious Doctrine in Defense of the Biblical Doctrine of Hell again available on amazon.com in both paperback and kindle. Before I even get to any of this uh, any of these others, I deal with that one first cuz it's it's a number one objection. So we got tw- I got I got like 20 25 minutes left in the podcast. Let me deal with some of these other ones. How could a loving God send infants to hell. You know, a lot of Christians, those in the reformed camp mostly, say that God sends infants to hell because of Adam's sin, original sin. Um I don't I don't think he does. I don't think God does send babies to hell. I think for one thing, uh, original sin, I don't think that that is true. I take I would side more with the orthodox view the Eastern Orthodox view of original sin. I do believe that we all inherit a sinful nature from Adam. And I do believe that we sin because we have a sinful nature. We sin is inherent to us. I do affirm the doctrine of total depravity. We have a sin nature and that sin nature affects every aspect of our being. So I'm not a I'm not advocating Pelagian here, but rather, but there is a difference between inherited guilt and inherited depravity. I accept inherited depravity. What I reject is inherited guilt. Let's look at what the passage actually says. Romans chapter five, verses twelve to uh, let's let's stop at verse eighteen. Uh, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, but who was a type of the one who who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift uh, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For if the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many tra- trespasses brought justification for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men so by the act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men now is this saying is this is this passage saying that god holds all people accountable for the sin of eating the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden? No, I don't think so. And I think verse 12 gives it away. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why did, why did death spread to all men? Because all sinned. It says death spread to all men because all sinned. It doesn't say death spread to all people because Adam sinned, as we would expect Paul to say if that's what if or, if inherited guilt is what Paul is preaching. But no, it says death spread to all men because all sinned. The reason we all die is because we all sin. The reason we all sin is because we all have a sin nature. The reason we have a sin nature is because our parents had a sin nature. The reason our parents had a sin nature is because their parents had a sin nature. And the reason their parents had a sin nature is, and so on and so forth, all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had a sin nature. Why did Adam and Eve have a sin nature? Because Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and committed the first sin, introducing sin to the human race. What I believe Paul is, ad, uh, is putting forth here is a sort of chain reaction where this, the action of one man has a, a ripple effect throughout human history. Adam sins. Adam obtains a sin nature. Adam has children. Their children, His children have a sin nature. Because they have a sin nature, they sin. Because they sin, they die. And so on and so forth. That is what I think Paul is saying here. And so, in one sense, people experience spiritual death because of Adam's sin. But it's not because they're being held accountable for Adam's sin, but rather, Adam's sin brought about didn't determine, but it brought about them sinning. And so I just don't think that appealing to uh, to original sin as justification for infant damnation, I don't think that's a good argument. Furthermore, there is good evidence for what theologians call the age of, of accountability now there is no bible passage that says outright that babies automatically go to heaven when they die nevertheless there are verses in scripture that would allow us to make that inference in matthew chapter 19 verse 24 jesus said let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these The one passage that seems to identify with this topic more than any other is 2 Samuel chapter 12 verses 21 to 23. The context of these verses is that King David committed adultery with Bathsheba with a resulting pregnancy. The prophet Nathan was sent by the Lord to inform David that because of his sin, the Lord would take the child in death. David responded to this by grieving, mourning, and praying for the child. But once the child died, David's mourning ended. David's servants were astonished to hear this. They said to King David, What is this thing you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. David's response was, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he has died. Now now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So this is Second Samuel chapter twelve. Now David's response indicates that those who cannot believe are safe in the Lord. David said that he would go to his chi- he would go to his child, but he couldn't bring the child back to him. Now how could David go to his child unless the child went to the afterlife? Unless child, unless his child went to heaven. Moreover, the fact David this seemed to brought this seemed to have brought David comfort. David seemed to re- to really be indicating that he would see his child again someday even though he couldn't bring him back another passage is Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 39 and the little ones that you said would be taken captive your children who do not yet know good from bad they will enter the land and i will give i will give it to them and they will take possession of it Exodus chapter 30 verses 14 to 15 says, All who cross over over those 20 years old or more are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less. When you make an offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. In each of these cases, God does not judge people below a certain age. David said that he would that his baby son would be with him. He said he would go to him, indicating that his baby son went to heaven. God acknowledges in Deuteronomy 1.39 that the children with the Israelites did not know good from bad. And because they did not know good from bad, He would therefore not ban them from entering the promised land, unlike their parents. Therefore, we can infer from these passages that there is an age of accountability, even if the teaching is not explicit in the text. Okay, objection number three to the doctrine of hell. Da-da-da-da-da. Objection number three. Why the hell would God punish all sins equally? Now, this objection comes from a common Christian teaching that all sins are equally evil to God. I've heard this. I grew up in the church. I heard this my whole life from my parents and my pastor. They said, oh, sin is sin. Sin is sin to God. All sin is, is sin to God. My sin is no worse than yours. Uh, th- that's what, you know, will they'll, they'll say, my sin is no worse than yours. Your sin is no worse than mine. To God, sin is sin. Christians often think that while we think some sins are worse than others, God doesn't. Of course, if all sins are equal in severity, then that means that God must deal out judgment on all sinners equally. What this means is that he puts the friendly atheist next door on the same level of torment as Adolf Hitler. However, even though this is a common thought in Christendom, is it really true? Is this what the Bible actually teaches? Are all sins really equal to God? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, I say this on the basis of several biblical passages. The first one that immediately comes to mind is Luke chapter 7, verses 40 to 50. In this passage, uh, Jesus is having a meal with uh, one of the religious leaders, and an adulterous woman came and was kissing his feet and washing them with her tears and drying them with her hair. Uh, The Pharisee was upset that Jesus would do this and and didn't send the sinful woman away. And then, Luke, uh, Jesus gives uh, an illustration to this religious leader. He says that there are two people who owe their master money. One owes 50 shekels and the other owes 500 shekels. However, the master forgave both of their debts equally. And Jesus then asks the Pharisee, who will love their master more? And the the Pharisee answered, the one who owed him the most money. Now, Jesus here seems to be indicating that there are some people who are more in debt to God than others. One, in Jesus' illustration, one guy owed his master 50 shekels, and another person owed him 500 shekels. 500 is more than 50. Clearly one person was more in debt, was more in debt than the other. And Jesus used this as an illustration of people uh, of people being in sin, a sin debt to God, but God forgiving us. So, G, according to Jesus here, Jesus here seems to be saying that there that some people are more in debt to God than others. Another example, Exodus chapter 32, verse 21. In this verse, Moses asked Aaron, and in the context, this is when Moses came down from the mountain, saw that the Israelites were worshiping a golden calf. Moses was really ticked. And in Exodus thirty-two, twenty-one, Moses asked Aaron, what did this people do to you that you brought so great a sin upon them? What did this people do to you that you brought so great a sin upon them? Obviously, this is comparative language. Moses is indicating that Aaron's sin was more evil or had greater implications than some other sin. Another example. in the, This one is in the New Testament. Matthew 5.19 in this verse, Jesus said that whoever breaks the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Clearly, certain commandments were considered least, and by comparison, others must have been considered greater. In Matthew twenty three twenty three, Jesus chastised the Pharisees for, quote, "...neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith." His point was obvious. The failure to tie the rather small amount of spices was much less of a sin than the failure to administer justice and mercy. So, as you can see, not all sins are equal to God. Some are worse than others. We can infer, then, on this basis that God must also deal different degrees of punishment to people in hell based on what they did. If some sins are worse than others then the punishment in hell must be worse for some than others. The fact that not all sins are equal would be enough to make the inference that not everyone suffers equally in hell. However, we have some biblical evidence for varying degrees of punishment also. One example of this in Math- is Matthew chapter 10, verses 11-15. In this passage, Jesus sent out, the twelve apostles to preach, for them to, to look for a house with someone in it who will let them stay for the night. If the house is a worthy home, give it a blessing. And if it was not, then the disciples were to take the blessing back. Jesus tells the disciples that if the townspeople refused to let them stay the night and also refused to listen to the gospel message, they were to shake the dust from their sandals and leave. Jesus then says, I tell you the truth, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah will be better off than such a town on Judgment Day. According to Jesus, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are going to experience a less severe judgment than the people who reject these disciples and deny them a place to crash for the night. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah will be better off. Than these people, this is highly suggestive of differing degrees of punishment. If there are di- varying degrees of punishment, if there were no, uh, or rather, if there were no varying degrees of punishment, then how is it possible for Sodom to be, be better off than anyone on Judgment Day? If all sins are equal and therefore all punishment is equal, how can anyone be better? How can anyone be better off than anyone else? Now. Let's come, we now come to the final objection. And that is the problem, what is called the problem of the unevangelized. The problem of the unevangelized. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Bible is pretty clear that Jesus Christ is the only way that anyone's going to get into heaven. Acts 4.12 and John 14.6 are unequivocal. Non-Christians have a hard time with this doctrine, though. They think, that God is being too narrow in providing us with only one way out. I used to scoff at this objection. I used to think, well, oh, we should be grateful that God provided any means at all to be saved. After all, God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. God wants everyone to be saved, as First Peter, as First Timothy two four and Second Peter three nine say, and as Ezekiel eighteen twenty three indicates, He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but He He prefers that everyone, He prefers that the wicked turn from their way and live. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, who's a part of the world? Are you a part of the world? Am I a part of the world? Is Adolf Was Adolf Hitler a part of the world? Are the people of ISIS, are the members of ISIS parts of the world? Yes, anyone who is a part of the world is someone God loves and sent his son to die for. So, yeah, God wants everyone saved. He loves everyone. But he doesn't owe salvation to anyone. He's not he doesn't owe us salvation. It's salvation is, is an unmerited gift that God offers us. We should be grateful He provided in any way at all. But I, I, I now know precise. I now understand precisely the problem underlying the hang up with Jesus being the only way, and the problem of the unevangelized is that underlying issue. What happens to those who never hear of Jesus? Does God send them to hell? How could God do that? How could God, who loves the entire human race, according to John 3.16, condemn some to hell for rejecting Christ if they haven't even so much as heard of his name? We know that it's unjust to penalize someone for not fulfilling a moral obligation if they were unaware and or incapable of, uh, of, be, of being aware or unable or, or able to fulfill that obligation. This is, by the way, one of the reasons I believe that God doesn't hold infants accountable, because they can't sin. So, first of all, we know, okay, condemnation for sin is just. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. All people have sinned, Romans 3.23, Psalm 14, verses 2-4. to But, the question is... The question is not whether they deserve it, but whether, since God loves all people and He want and He wants all people saved, wouldn't He make a way for them to be saved? The problem is not that the pro- that it impugns God's justice. It seems to be that it impugns His love. If you love someone, you would want to save them from permanent harm. And we do know that God does want all people saved. This is what 2 Peter 3.9 and 1 Timothy 2.4 says. So how do we answer this? Well, one, one some well-meaning but misguided Christians have tried to solve this problem by saying that those who never hear the gospel uh, and therefore never have a chance to deny it will never be held accountable for their lack of belief in Jesus Christ. The problem is, is that this makes the Great Commission out to be a bad thing. The Bible tells us to preach the gospel to all creation, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. But this solution logically entails that if a person hears the gospel and rejects it, he actually would have been better off if he had never heard it at all. I remember seeing a comic strip a, a few years ago involving an Eskimo and a Catholic priest. The Eskimo asks, "Uh, if you hadn't hadn't told me about Jesus, would I have gone to hell? And the preacher responds, no, you wouldn't have gone to hell. You wouldn't have been accountable for your unbelief if you had never heard of Jesus. And then the Eskimo responds, then why did you tell me? (laughs) The point of the comic is obvious. By preaching the gospel to a person who ends up rejecting it, we sentence him to hell. On this view, it, it turns out that we actually do a disservice to a man by preaching the gospel to him. This is clearly absurd. God will, I, God will judge people based on the revelation that they do have. Uh, we have to recognize that God's existence can be known through everything that he has created. This is what theologians call God's general revelation. Sometimes it's called God's natural revelation. Um, because it's God's way of revealing to uh, himself to us through the created order. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to twenty says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since they may since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. This passage says that people can know god exists through everything that has been made and that this evidence from nature is so powerful that people are completely without excuse and not affirming that god exists it's verse 20 that's that it says that is why god has made this truth uh he has made this truth very evident to mankind in verse 19 and that people essentially have to talk themselves out of believing that God exists verse 18. Psalm chapter 19 says the same thing. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words the the ends of the world. The heavens declare the glory of God. To declare the glory of God presupposes declaring the existence of God. You can't declare the glory of someone unless you declare that that person exists. Some Christian apologists and theologians suggest that perhaps God judges the unevangelized based on the revelation that they already do have. Uh, the revelation from God in nature and conscience. God, God exists. There is a creator. Psalm 19, Romans chapter 1. Moreover, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15 says that God programmed a sense of right and wrong on our hearts. The more, uh, all, this is known as the moral law. Dr. William Lane Craig wrote in chapter 10 of his book, On Guard, that, quote, Imagine a North American Indian living prior to the arrival of Christian missionaries. Let's call him Walking Bear. Let us suppose that as Walking Bear looks up at the heavens at night and sees the beauty of nature around him, he senses that all of this has been made by the Great Spirit. Furthermore, as Walking Bear looks into his own heart, he senses there the moral law, telling him that all men are brothers, made by the Great Spirit, and he therefore realizes that we ought to live in love for one another. But suppose that instead of worshipping the Great Spirit and living in love for his fellow man— Walking bear ignores the Great Spirit and creates totems of other spirits, and that rather than loving his fellow man, he lives in selfishness and cruelty toward others. In such a case, walking bear would be justly condemned before God on the basis of his failure to respond to God's general revelation in nature and conscience End quote. In this case, walking bear can be saved. He can make it into heaven, even though he didn't hear about Jesus Christ. Now, before I end up on pulpit and pen, this is not to say that people can be saved apart from the atoning work of Christ. Rather, it is to say that the atoning benefits of Christ's death could be applied to people without them having to be cognitively aware of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. As William Lane Craig pointed out in his book On Guard, these people would be a lot like uh, Job and Melchizedek. Neither Job nor Melchizedek were aware of Christ, but nevertheless they had a relationship with God. Dr. Craig says that there could be modern-day Jobs living in those small parts of the world which hasn't been reached with the gospel. Romans chapter 2 verse 7 says, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. The Bible tells us that if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. James chapter 4 verse 8. At this point, a very obvious objection arises. If people can be saved through the atoning death of Christ by just responding to God's general revelation in nature and conscience, then what is the point of evangelism? Why tell people about Jesus if they can be saved apart from hearing the gospel? The reason evangelism doesn't become superfluous in light of everything I've just said is because the Bible prevents us from having much optimism that there are very many people like Job and Melchizedek. Who respond to God's general revelation in nature and conscience? The language of Romans 1 seems to imply that the majority of people suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Verse 18, and go off and worship other gods, gods of their own making. Verses 21 to 22. And as I said in chapter one, uh, I mean, uh, as I of my book, as I said in chapter one of my book, uh, the hellacious doctrine, I say there. That doesn't necessarily have to be a statue or a totem pole. Putting anything as a higher priority than having a relationship with God is idolatry. Uh, Moreover, Romans chapter 10, verse 14, gives us good reason to expect that most people won't come to salvation apart from hearing the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Paul doesn't seem to expect anyone to be saved by Christ unless they first hear about him. He's rhetorically asking how people can call on Christ without believing in him. Believing in him is a prerequisite for calling on him. But hearing about him is a prerequisite for... For believing in him. And having a preacher tell them about Jesus is a prerequisite for hearing about him. Therefore, even though it's possible for someone to get saved solely on the basis of, of responding to God's general revelation, it is far, far more likely that someone will respond positively if they have both God's general revelation and his special revelation. This is why both preaching the gospel and doing apologetics is so vital. It seems that most people repent by having both of God's revelations rather than just one. God's primary way in bringing salvation to people is through Christian evangelism and missions. He has commanded us to preach the gospel to all nations, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. In light of this, we can better understand why Paul says... Quote, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Romans chapter one and verse sixteen. KJV. Now, at this point, one may be wondering what would happen if, if some unevangelized person, though he rejected God's general revelation, what would what, what if he what if he would have responded? ...to the gospel, special revelation, if only he had heard it. Um, Returning to William Lane Craig's Walking Bear illustration, if Walking Bear rejected God's revelation in nature and conscience... ...and just instead decided to worship idols and and be a jerk, um, and he ends up going to hell as a result... uh, ...you might wonder how Walking Bear would have responded if... A Christian missionary visited his village and, and told him about Jesus. Perhaps, in that case, Walking Bear would have received salvation if he had both of God's revelations. This poses a problem, though, for, for if this is the case, it seems as though Walking Bear's fate was a result of a, a geographical and temporal accident. He, he just had the bad luck to be born in a time and place when and where he didn't have the opportunity to hear the gospel but God is too loving to let someone perish simply because they didn't have a privilege to be a 21st century American living two blocks away from a church or a third world country in the path of missionaries. How should we respond to this? Well, first of all, even if it were the case that Walking Bear would have responded to God if he had endured through other circumstances, it is still nevertheless the case that Walking Bear could have responded to God in any circumstance he found himself in. Walking Bear could have responded to God's revelation in nature and conscience, with the tugging of the Holy Spirit, of course, thrown himself on the mercy of the Great Spirit and said, Great Spirit, I don't know who you are or what you want from me, but I know that you created all things and are Lord over all. I also know that I'm not as good of a man as I should be. Please have mercy on me. And God would have applied Jesus's blood and cleansed him of his sins. If walking bear ignores God's uh, general revelation and ends up lost, it's his fault, not God's. He could not say to God on Judgment Day, Oh, if only you had created me in a different time and place, then I would have responded to the gospel. It's your fault that I never heard it and am therefore lost. God will say, No, you had the ability to respond to the revelation I did give you, yet you chose to ignore me. It's true that you would have repented if you had heard the gospel but nothing prevented you from responding to my general revelation alone. Didn't you feel me tugging on your heart? Uh, secondly, and I'm drawing on again on the wisdom of Dr. William Lane Craig again, it's possible that people who would have responded to the gospel, if they heard it, actually do hear it. It could be the case that... It could be the case that anyone who never hears the gospel actually wouldn't have responded positively to it, even if they had heard it. And anyone who would respond positively actually does have the opportunity to hear it. God, in virtue of being an omniscient being, knows what any free creature would freely do in any given circumstance and therefore can providentially order the world so that anyone who never hears the gospel and is lost wouldn't have positively responded to it anyway. Of course, we don't know this for sure, but it is at least possible. Even if the scenario isn't the case, it is still true that people in parts of the world not yet reached with the gospel can be saved by responding to uh, to God's revelation in nature and conscience. In conclusion... I don't think the doctrine of hell is incompatible with either God's love or God's justice. God gave every human being a way to avoid hell. Jesus died on the cross for everyone. As see John 3, 16, 1 John 2, two 1 Timothy two six, Hebrews two nine. He doesn't want anyone to end up in hell. Second Peter three 9, 1 Timothy two four, Ezekiel twelve twenty three. He gives us the choice to accept whether his offer, uh, uh, to either accept or reject his, his offer of salvation. If we end up in hell, he mourns for us. Now. That said, hell is a very terrible place, and we should do everything we can to witness to people. My favorite Charles Spurgeon quote of all time is, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. God bless you, and I'll see you next week. If you want to support this, uh, this podcast, go to patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Thank you for listening. God bless you. See you next time.